everyone. This is Sandy Vartharaja, co-host of the Pulse podcast. In this episode, I sat with Nita Summers, who is an operating partner at Kosla Ventures focused on healthcare. Nita has spent over 20 years working in the health tech sector with a passion for early stage, high growth companies transforming healthcare, such as Athena Health, Castlight Health, and Honor. She also worked at McKinsey and McKesson and studied at both Stanford and Harvard. Hope you enjoy the episode. Well, thanks for joining us, Nita. Love to start off these conversations by just talking about how the pandemic is treating you. What are you doing in your spare newfound time? Are you working all the time or any new habits or hobbies that you've picked up? Yeah, I don't know that I have newfound time. I think actually in healthcare, the pandemic has introduced lots of new work, exciting work often, but a lot of key changes. For example, when COVID first hit, I was honor at the time and honor as a care provider to senior. So as you can imagine, we were just working 24-7, standing up safety protocols and keeping our clients and caregivers safe. So exciting times and important work, but certainly not a lot of free time. My new fun task that I have been spending a lot of time on is being a teacher. I have a four and a seven-year-old, so we've been homeschooling my four-year-old and distance learning my seven-year-old. A, a new challenge to balance both juggling work as well as being the primary source of education for my children, but both were very rewarding work. I've always loved teaching at the same time. Yeah. I know your main career focus has been in healthcare, but now getting some exposure to the education space, any sort of reflections you've had on things you didn't realize about our system or things you wish might evolve post-pandemic for the U.S. education system, just spitballing? I have actually always loved education as well. I almost went into it and considered it in healthcare. Um, I think what has been most interesting is really, I guess, two things. Is One is spending a lot of time thinking about the diversity of ways that kids learn and how it's very different and how to start tailoring education a bit better for all the different needs out there. I think that's a really interesting topic. I think the second that the pandemic has really highlighted is some of the inequities that still really exist. You know, we are lucky. Our school district's been really on top of things like distance learning, but there's many that haven't. And I think that's a really interesting issue to address over time. Yeah. And certainly a lot of implications in the healthcare space, because as we know, health literacy is a major determinant in health. And a lot of that comes from just general literacy levels to even translations to professional career paths that might come about because of the school district that you attended as a child. Yeah. And I think it even highlights some of the core challenges that you have both in healthcare and education, but very basic things like, do people even have working internet in their homes that you know, do start to create these differences. And there's a lot of technology development, there's a lot of innovation, but there are certain people that get access to that. And then there's a number of people for a variety of structural reasons that they don't. And so how do we start to also break and change some of those sort of structural elements that I think kind of impact both education and healthcare equity out there right now in the country? Yeah. So maybe a meta question for you around healthcare, because in the last 10 years, digital health has exploded. And there are tons of companies that are claiming that they will bend the cost curve by introducing these cool new tech-enabled services. Meanwhile, in parallel, there are a lot of these sort of root social issues that drive a lot of outcomes and cost in healthcare. And so as an executive or as an investor, how do you sort of marry those two trends in your head as you're thinking about scaling products to different markets, et cetera? I think you have to manage expectations and then also be very focused in what you put your energies against. I think my learning, having spent over 20 years in the healthcare space, is that change is hard. Um, change is really important, but it's hard and you have to be very focused on where you plan to put all your energies against. But at the same time, having been in this field for so long, there is a lot of change, right? It sounds really silly, but when I started at Athena Health, 
we were just making things electronic. Like we were taking paper and making it electronic. And it sounds like a very silly, easy thing to do, but that was actually really novel at the time. And now it's sort of something that a lot of providers are working on. There's still some that aren't, but there's been enormous progress in that one little simple thing that we started there. So I think a lot of it is having a long-term view and not expecting change overnight. I think there are industries where that can happen. And I think healthcare just isn't one of them. So you kind of have to have that fortitude and take your wins and see them. But I think with really concerted effort, there's been enormous change over these last many years in terms of the space and what people have been able to accomplish. So going back in time, you mentioned that education was on the table for you career-wise, obviously healthcare. Why go into an industry like healthcare versus anything else? Yeah, I always loved it. My parents are scientists, so I think I always loved biology and science. And I actually, if you asked me when I was like seven, I swore I was going to be a pediatrician. I just, for some reason, was very fixated on becoming a doctor (laughs) from a very young age and, or, you know, went all the way through college and did my pre-med work. And um, that was at the time when HMOs, and there were a lot of big questions around how the healthcare system was working. And in the course of college, just got much more interested though, in like, how does the overall system work? And how do you start to make some of these more systematic changes? Because if you're just one doctor working in the system and the system is broken, you can't really impact and fix things. And that became a more interesting thing to me. And at first I thought I'd actually pursue a career in health policy and almost went to get my PhD in that area. And then very randomly did a summer internship at Athena Health when it was a super tiny company that didn't, no one had ever heard of. And I found using technology and innovation as a way to drive change was actually just much more interesting to me. I think the pace with which policy can move is in the order of years, many, many years sometimes to drive really systematic change is very important lever. But I found the pace of change that a startup can drive and starting to really get things going was just more a fit for me in a really exciting space. And that first job was, as I said, really, I hadn't planned it. It just sort of fell in my lap. And then I just fell in love with the space and I've stayed in it ever since. That's awesome. Super inspiring and very cool because you were on the pre-med track, which conceptually you think is like very structured. You would almost associate with a big company environment, like everything is sort of planned for you in terms of a checklist. And then you decide to go to a really small company and, and help scale it from there. I think one cool thing about your journey, among many things, is that you've worked at both startups and large companies like McKinsey, McKesson, et cetera. And so It seems like it's been a revolving door in your career where you've gone from small company back to big company and vice versa. But what are the lessons that you've learned from working in each environment as it translates to technology innovation? And how has that influenced your journey today? I think I'm a little unique in that I like both environments. Usually people tend to like one or the other. And I actually have found, I actually like both for different reasons. My startup years, I really enjoyed because you go super deep in an area, you know it in and out and you can drive, you can really see the impact of your changes, right? You can build a new product and take it to market. You can change how an industry works in a period of years. And that's super exciting. I think in my years where I worked at places like McKinsey or McKesson or my job right now, I'm spanning lots of industries, working with lots of different companies. And that's interesting in a different way because you get to see the whole system and you can actually start to influence many, many different parts and sometimes in bigger scales because you're working with much bigger businesses that have bigger footprints. And so I find things to like in both of them. And I usually, when I'm talking with other people, I say, well, think about what you enjoy doing. And usually one sort of gravitates, but I've actually found a lot of value in going back and forth. I actually think I'm a better entrepreneur because I understand how big companies work and I understand how all the different players think. Vice versa, when I'm doing work on the macro scale, I think I'm better because I actually understand what it takes to build a business. And I've been in the entrepreneur's shoes. 
And so for me, it's been actually a powerful intersection to be work having experience across both of those areas. But as I said, some of it also has to do just with your personal preferences and kind of what gets you going and kind of what type of environments you like working in. Yeah. The analogy I like to use is, would you rather have a slice of the watermelon or the whole grape? And the whole grape being owning end-to-end, having a lot of autonomy and ownership, and frankly, a lot of runway to go run at any problem that is facing your company, but inherently smaller impact or scale versus working at the company that touches millions or billions, but you owning like the color of a button is the analogy everyone uses. So let's walk through your career journey from Athena Health to Castlight to Honor specifically. What drove you to join Athena? And then how did you sort of move about in your career? As I mentioned, Athena was kind of an unexpected uh, career destination for me. When I decided I didn't want to be a doctor, but I was like, I needed to get a summer internship because I was in college and that was what everyone was doing. My brother happened to know Ed Park. They had been classmates together. And he said, why don't you go work with Ed? He's doing something interesting in healthcare. And I had not taken computer science or done a lot of that type of work, but he was the CTO of the company. So I taught myself programming and I got a job as an engineer with them. And so my early (laughs) couple months with them was actually coding. So I was one woman amongst a group of 20 guys in the beginning of the company. And I directly coded some of the early parts of their practice management system. And then once the team got big enough to have a, a product management team, actually moved and helped build out that function. I actually really enjoy that type of work even more, interfacing with customers and understanding market needs. But I did find the background and having done coding for a couple of years was really helpful just because I understood the technology and the infrastructure really well. So it made me better as a product manager when I was there. But I was always all R&D side and was just literally building product all the time and saw the company with maybe about 30 people when I started, about 600 people when I left. So just through a really interesting period of growth in that company as they started to get their solution out into the market. So then walking through Castlight, and am I correct in interpreting that you helped exit the company? I did. Yeah. So I would say my time at Athena was really great, kind of got to see the solution get built, go through a couple evolutions there. And then people don't always commonly know this, but Todd Park, who co-founded Athena Health, co-founded Castlight Health, and a number of the early people at Castlight Health were some of the engineering team at Athena. So it was kind of like a sister company. It was really natural for me to jump into it just because I had some common roots with the team there. And I spent over seven years at Castlight. So again, I joined them very early. There was maybe 15 people. We were in a warehouse space in San Francisco and no product, no customers at the time that I joined. Got to see that company all the way through its journey of building customer scaling. I led the company's IPO. I was on the IPO roadshow. And then I, my later years at the company actually spent a lot of time working with Wall Street, which is a really different experience, but a really useful experience to have in your life. Before diving into each of these experiences, because I have so many questions, but again, this meta point around you having seen so many exits or experiencing these intense phases of growth from really early stage to growth stage to then hopefully exit and comparing that landscape when you were working to the current landscape of seems like everyone is going public or SPACs and the landscape just feels like it's becoming really crowded What is your perspective on, are these companies all hype or did companies like Athena and Castlight really early on pave the way for digital health companies to have an exit path? Yeah, I don't think it's all hype. I mean, I think it's actually been a lot of, as I said, many, many years of hard works from tons of entrepreneurs, some of which succeeded and some of which frankly didn't to get the market to where it is. I mean, I think Athena was very unique. It was really, to me, I think it may be actually the first digital health company, right? The first one to use cloud-based and SaaS technology into the market. And 
that took years to get adoption. I'll just be frank. I mean, it wasn't like, as I said, it wasn't the company where all of a sudden doctors just embraced it overnight. They're one of the most conservative groups of people out there. They're risk averse. It took years of selling and proving a value and slowly working, you know, way up from small groups to larger groups to get adoption and then later of EHRs into the marketplace. Um, And then I think it's the fact that businesses like Athena eventually did go public and were able to drive sustainable year-over-year growth to their investors that opened up the investment market for future companies to start to take shape. And I would say, I think Athena was really common. I think the first wave of investment went into companies that were focused on, you know, provider IT and pharma IT type solutions. And then you started to see investment going into newer areas like Castlight, I think was also kind of a landmark company in the sense it's one of the first ones that was developing solutions for the employer. And the payer, with all the shifts we saw in self-insurance and high deductible plans, it was really capitalizing on a trend in a market that hadn't really had solutions made for it. And now you're even seeing a new wave of kinds of investments out there, technology-enabled services, one medical honor. Like these are actually new types of companies that are getting funded as well. So I think the fact is it's been a slow opening of eyes to what can be invested, what can be sustainable. You know, I think at the same time, there is because of that more investment, more competition. That's all really great. I think there's some companies that succeed, some that don't, some that get kind of halfway there, but that diversity is good. And I think there is just more and more interest in the sector now that people can see what the potential is of it. Let's talk about Athena Health. When Ed Park obviously started the company, it was heralded as a major and still is a major contender to traditional hosting solutions like an Epic or a Cerner. So because of its cloud infrastructure and its new business model, it would be great if you could walk through why its business model was slightly different than existing companies, set it apart from the Epics and the Cerners. So maybe walk through why Athena Health was unique in the market at the time and what other healthcare SaaS businesses can learn from a company like Athena. So what I think Athena did that was really different is you think of what was in the market today were a bunch of these products and services that were these big installs on people's own kind of mainframes and computers where all their data was on site and everything was basically controlled by the provider. And I think what Athena was sort of saying is, you know, now we can, we have this thing called the cloud, right? This is the late nineties. It was sort of a novel in all sorts of industries. Sounds so silly, but it was like, okay, like if you actually use our system, then we can kind of get the cost of what it takes to bring the software to you way down. So it started to enable some of these solutions that used to be kind of just available to really kind of large provider systems able to be accessed by much smaller groups. So that was, I think, one really novel thing they were doing. I think the second was they were really focused on this trend towards moving data electronically, right? So instead of doing everything over paper, like back then, every claim was built on paper. And it was just the start of ANSI transactions and digital transactions to actually submit claims electronically. And Athena was one of the ones that was on the forefront of actually pushing that trend and starting to move there. And once the data was moving electronically, there's a lot you could do around revenue cycle management and actually how to get that build faster, quicker, easier, and really improve the cash flow of the physicians that adopted it. So I think that was what was sort of so unique at the time was both the segments it could kind of address, the way it could actually impact the financial revenue cycle, and then over time, the pace at which it could kind of innovate the software, right? Because you could deploy new software much more quickly than these older systems. As I said, it still took years to adopt, but I think that's why they were able to get an inroad. And frankly, I mean, that was a tough time, late 90s into the dot-com bust time. Like they were one of the few companies that actually made it. And I think it's because they actually had a really clear and compelling product value and a set of customers that really liked them that helped to then get them inroads into their future customers. It was a very strong core business value prop that they had. And back to kind of how I talked through my career and just being a little opportunistic, what was really interesting for Athena is that the original business plan for that company was to be an OBGYN 
bricks and mortar practice. And that's actually how the company started. And uh, that's what Todd and Jonathan did. And Ed was just sort of there, like starting to build some technology to help them run the thing better. And eventually they were like, wow, this software that's being built to run our practice is actually really interesting. And that became the company. So sometimes having that flexibility to sort of say, I had one plan in my life, but I had one business plan for my company, but you kind of sort of just stumble across something else that is just much more compelling. I think they, I give them a lot of credit for just sort of jumping on that and adapting to it and then running with that new idea and the investors that kind of chose to back them, because obviously that became a, a really sustainable business to run. I think one thing that's really remarkable is all of this growth happening before we even hear about terms like meaningful use or high trust being passed and that there was that massive adoption in the market. Do you think that general provider attitudes are shifting to become more friendly to business ideas like an Athena, potentially as a result of a company like Athena existing, or are people fairly still resistant? What's your view there? I think they're always open, but in the same way, right? So I think the bars moved up. So right now there's not many places that don't run on some sort of electronic system for some part of their business. And I think it's sort of not something that's a question or using cloud-based technologies. Now, I think every new time some innovation comes in, let's say you now want to automate something that they used to do, or you want to apply some sort of new technology into the workflow. I do think there's just a pace of adoption you need to work through where you kind of really have to prove is, is it worth it, right? Is this new change going to drive enough value that it's worth changing my behaviors and patterns? And it's just a slightly more risk averse group. And there's a little bit more complexity of how you have to deploy solutions out there. So I still think they're open, but you still always have a little bit of that hurdle. Just like, and I would say this true across almost every segment of healthcare, it's just because it's a more complicated area and there are higher stakes, right? Like, and I would say, you know, it's a good example. Like if, if Athena went down, right, let's say the service all of a sudden cut out because it was not software, right? then you might not be able to check clients and know you might not be able to actually run your practice. There were sort of these higher stakes. And I could say the same thing for other new technologies. Let's say it's something that you're using to do part of your practice better, a clinical tool, and then that clinical tool fails. You know, there, there's just higher stakes in terms of what that means. I understand where some of the risk aversion comes from, but I think you always have some of that to work through with businesses like this. I think once you create those businesses, so they become very sticky, right? Because they become part of this new workflow and the new way that they're doing business. And then they become very reticent to ever change that in the future as well. So shifting to Castlight, as you said earlier, one of the first real companies that started recognizing that there was a market to be had in employer-sponsored insurance. And now self-insured employers, they are the predominant form of insurance across the U.S. So do sales channels continue to be really attractive for companies that are targeting this market? Is it fairly saturated? Where are there opportunities for innovation here? And, and why was Castlight able to capitalize on that pretty early on? I'll actually start with your last question and work my way back. But I think what was so interesting was I think the company was really smart in picking up this unmet market, right? And the unmet needs. It's one of the biggest things an entrepreneur can look for is just where is there a bunch of need and a bunch of pent up energy that isn't being satisfied. And I think the company really landed on all these employers that frankly, back then were very frustrated with what was being provided in the marketplace to them. And they did control a lot of spend and they did have a lot of needs that, that they were looking for solutions around. And so I think that's a great first thing to look at. I do think over the years, there's just been a ton of different little subcategories that have emerged into that marketplace from digital therapeutics to administrative solutions to HSAs. And so I still think it's a really viable market in terms of a set of solutions. The employers still are going to control for the foreseeable future a lot of spending in this country. So I think it makes a ton of sense. I do think there's been a lot more players that have entered the space. And so you have to be a lot more thoughtful 
And there is sort of at some point, there will be a limit of how many people really can play in this. So I think what you see now is that to be successful in the space, you have to be a very clear product value, right? It's just too crowded to kind of come in and you might get one or two customers if you have something glitzy to say or something like that, but you can't kind of get to sustainable revenue unless you either move ROI really well, you're really hitting a core administrative task that's really complicated. And so that's where I think, and I still think there's some rooms, like there are certain parts still that I think don't have great solutions. For example, something like cancer care or some of these areas that there are some that you can think of where there are still needs for solutions. But in categories that have been around a while for a long time, things like diabetes, it is increasingly a competitive marketplace. And which draws me to what I do think will start to keep happening, which is you'll start to continue to see a whittling down to sort of best of breed solutions and a couple of big solutions in each space. And probably increasingly a set of people that aggregate those together just to simplify buying and integration for employers, because large employers don't mind that work. But for smaller employers, it is cumbersome if you're working with lots and lots of different vendors in this space. So I think there will be continue to be some interesting new solutions, but I think increasingly more what will be interesting are strategic partnerships and M&A in this market and some of the other types of things that will change the landscape a bit. Yeah. And one macro question for you around employer-sponsored insurance at all. I think many people find it confusing that your health insurance is tied to your employment. And now I guess it makes sense because it just is the predominant form of insurance out there. But especially with the political debate around Medicare for all or the public option, potentially employer-sponsored insurance becomes a thing of the past in a few years. Do you think that's a risk that we should, we as a country or healthcare investors, operators should be worried about? I'm probably more skeptical out there just because literally when I was studying this in school 20 years ago, there was a bunch of other pushes for (laughs) mass coverage. And there's a lot of reasons, just fortunate or unfortunate in our country, why it's politically just very, very hard to change. So I do think there'll be these efforts which are more working within the structure. So for example, mandating employer coverage where people can provide it or expanding the Medicaid safety. I think there will be solutions to increase coverage because I do think that's a very important issue and we don't want a large uninsured population. However, I think massive change. I'm just a little bit more skeptical about our political system's ability to pull that off and have that sustain that I wouldn't necessarily sort of plan a business against it. (laughs) Yeah. So TLDR is probably more politically feasible to pass incremental system-based innovations rather than ripping out the blueprint altogether at this point. I think so. Yeah. So shifting now to honor and all of the buzz around home care, which really isn't current buzz. Like people have been talking about home care being low cost, high quality for decades now. And they're starting to be some more reimbursement favors towards the home setting as a site of care. The value prop is really clear, but yet companies, not necessarily honor specifically, but companies in the home care space still struggle to scale potentially because they're working with vulnerable populations who may not be tech savvy, if they're tech-enabled companies, potentially because it's hard to hire in staff workers, do you hire them part-time or full-time, et cetera. So all of these strategic questions. When you were at Honor, what were some of the challenges and headwinds that the company faced? And how do you see that translating across the home care space more broadly now, especially in light of COVID-19? Honor, just for folks that are less familiar, that works in a space we call non-medical home care. So there's a couple different parts of what I would call like care in the home. So there's traditional home health, which is more Medicare reimbursed, where you have doctors and nurses going to the home. 
And then we have a market called home care, which are largely caregivers. They're not usually RN certified or they don't carry that clinical certification. They do usually have some skill in working with home-based clients. And that was the market that Honor worked in. It's about a 25 to $30 billion industry. And I think what was interesting kind of learning about that market was to your point that there's some really good things, right? So I'll start with some of the things that are really positive on the market. A lot of just core demographic trends, right? So we have a lot of aging populations. The growth of seniors is enormous right now. The number of people over the age of 65 is doubling over the next many years. The number over the age of 80 is going to triple, right? So you have a lot of people that getting out and getting care is really complicated, increasingly homebound, increasingly lots of comorbid conditions. And most of the time, and this is a kind of scary stat, but you know, over 60% of those people often live alone, right? So just they sort of need a lot of care and they're not able to usually provide it to themselves. So I think a really great market in terms of size and growing. Now, some of the challenges to it is there are a couple of things. Very hard to kind of manage logistics into this market. So home-based services are complicated in the sense that it's not like you're just running a center, right? And that's still complicated in logistics, right? Davida will say that's not easy for me to run all my dialysis clinics by any means and run that at a good margins, right? So that's what any normal, I think, more services-oriented company has to deal with. But you add on to that the complexity of now I've also got to get people like to and from all these different homes and still also do that at a viable margin. And so that's where I think a lot of companies, what you see in this market is there's a number of small companies, right? Like a market that serves, you know, I serve one part of Texas, right? I serve Dallas. But then you don't see often sometimes some really big large scale solutions because actually managing those logistics at scale can get really complicated to do well when you're like not based in that geography, right? And you've got workforces all over the place. And so that's kind of, I think, one core challenge in the market. And I think the other is that it's a hard market to reach, right? You've got all these seniors in their home. You can't mass market to them usually. They may not be super familiar with digital. They may be also pretty slow and reticent to change behaviors and adopt new technologies. So I think go-to-market is also something that is takes some real experimentation to figure out what's viable in that. So those were kind of the two big things that Honor really spent a lot of time on in its years as a business was sort of thinking about those. And what was interesting on the company is that rather than using all of its R&D money and talent to create like fancy apps for the senior or, you know, things like that, much of it just went into really just hardcore logistics and workforce management type technology to get people through enrollment and training faster to kind of figure out how do I make sure I get the right caregiver into the home? How do I make sure they do the right things? And I have sort of eyes and ears on what they're, what they're doing to ensure service quality. So it was sort of a very interesting and different, I would say, quote unquote, product. The product is the human or the service into the home. And you're building technology more to make that human effective. And so it's a really different type of product development and mindset for the company than software companies like Athena or Castlet, where the product really was, you know, you were building all this stuff to create a product that you went and then sold out to a customer. And the other thing that we ended up having to spend a lot of time was go to market and some really creative go to market strategies to figure out how do we really find customers and scalably find and deploy customers, which took some unique partnership based models in the end for the company to be successful there. Another interesting point is it seems like with Honor and a lot of home care companies, the customer is different than the buyer in many cases. Like with CalSite, you're selling to the employer, you're also serving them and their employees. With Athena, you're selling to and serving providers. With Honor, you're serving mostly elder or vulnerable populations, but who is paying for these solutions oftentimes? Yeah. And this is a little different than different parts of the home care chain. For honors market, much of their business is self-pay or long-term care insurance. But I would say in that market, it's usually not even necessarily the client. It's often the older adult child or a spouse or a guardian 
who is at that point entrusted with the care. So it's kind of interesting in and of itself. And then over time, the company also created a strategy of working with other home care agencies. And those were kind of semi-customers slash partners that they would provide services to and the clients. So I think what I've just seen over time in all of these markets is a diversification of business models, right? You know, I think you see a lot of companies start out in like a very simple B2C model, and that helps to get a first few clients and build your kind of prototype of your product. But most companies have to generally start to look at some really different models once they get to the scaling point. A lot of them are B2B2C models in the employer market and the market that Honor worked in. I think those just become increasingly important to think about as ways to acquire users in a much more scalable way than one at a time, right? Which can just be really expensive, especially in this market. Let's shift to the next phase of your career. You've just had such an incredible career track, such a privilege to be able to talk about all these experiences with you. But now in your role at Coastal Ventures, you are an operating partner. So why transition from operating within a company to then taking on this role for a portfolio of companies? What was the impetus there? Yeah. When we talked about in the early days, I like kind of being deep in companies and truly building. I really like building. There are also times just personality wise, I really like taking a step back and seeing the big picture. And I actually feel like I find a lot of value in that and become more effective. And so what was really attracting about the opportunity with Coastal is I think a lot in healthcare has changed with COVID, right? There's markets that have really taken off. There's others that have really slowed down. And I was really eager to have an opportunity to take a step back and see what was going on in the marketplace more broadly, rather just than my little sliver that I was building a business in. And that actually has been super fascinating over these last uh, couple of weeks since joining the firm to really be looking at markets all the way from how is AI kind of starting to be used in healthcare to how are technology-enabled services, what's happening with digital therapeutics, what's new automation happening in the pharma world. It's really been all across the map that I've been able to spend some time and kind of see what's happening, what's doing well, what's not doing well in the marketplace. Yeah, that's great. Great thing about venture is that you get to see the whole forest, not just one tree. So I can imagine it's exciting to be able to see all these blossoming markets, especially in light of COVID. Why is it that more VCs don't have more operating partners? And maybe a Let's start with what is a day in the life of an operating partner? What does your schedule look like? What is your mandate? And then is that materially distinct from what an investment partner might do at a firm? So I think it depends on the firm. There's sort of two flavors of operating partners that I've come across so far. The more traditional one that most firms have is having a small set of people that are deep functional experts, maybe in finance or recruiting or communications, right? And they have those staff because their startups recurringly always need some help there. <laughs> and, and then they kind of just pop in and out of helping companies whenever they might have like a financing need or they're doing a big PR push. A less traditional form of it is actually having industry operating partners. So operating partners that come in with a bunch of functional and operating experience, whose job really is to come in and help companies use all those years of experience to help those companies actually be as successful as they can. And I think the value of those roles is that there are some investment partners with operating background, but you don't usually, maybe it's just a few years, sometimes not at all. And what's interesting is this, if you've been operating for 20 years, there's just a lot of things you've seen where you can kind of just help on certain stuff that maybe an investment partner is not as well suited for. It could be anywhere from, I'm trying to figure out the exact right way to structure comp plans or really hire my first salesperson, even negotiating a contract, you've been much more in their shoes before. And so I think that's kind of the value of an operating partner is sort of being that close advisor, often even board member that can just provide a different expertise around the table. 
not to displace what an investment partner might do, because they're usually going to be great at things like around financing, but just to complement them in a different way. So what does my life look like? I have a set of companies that I work with where I'm kind of talking to them weekly or daily around some of the things that they're working on. I'll be actually really hands-on. I'll have some others that I'm just talking with once a month, and we might just be getting on the phone to problem solve or brainstorm different topics. And then there's others where it might be even fewer and far between where most of my engagement is to help pick up on like, what are mass trends happening in the marketplace? What are different needs across the whole portfolio that Coastal has, which is a very big portfolio of healthcare companies? What can we be helping with them on in a more general, um, higher level way? Do you find that there is ever any tension between the management team at the company and sort of seeing an investor who might be more hands-on and may have different incentives for decisions that are being made at the board table or on these regular calls? Yeah, as an operating partner, I think you have to you have to read the portfolio company to figure out the right level engagement. I think most companies are actually really receptive to it. And I think actually when I was running companies, I was really receptive to it, mostly because especially the more senior you get at a startup, like if you're a senior executive, you start to actually have very few people that you can really truly brainstorm with because you're always sort of having to feel really confident and appear like you know everything and have complete control over everything when you're with your company. So I actually find a lot of, particularly CEOs, kind of often like a few people that they can really brainstorm and solution with and talk about some of the hardest issues facing the business. Now, there's a couple that sometimes they're like, I know what I'm doing. I want to be really hands-off. So you kind of read that as an operating partner. Certainly folks that have already built businesses before are a little bit more independent. But you know, I think it's a little bit more personality. And I sort of would never force kind of work on other than governance type work where there are certain things you have to sometimes do from a governance perspective to make sure a company's being run right. But you know, separate from that in terms of more advisory work, I think you kind of read where can I have the most impact where someone the most receptive to it and how high priority is this company to the portfolio? You mentioned that you obviously have a set of companies that you specifically are working with. Are there any parallels in terms of the sub-industries that they work in in healthcare? Are they totally all over the spectrum? And what challenges are they facing right now in light of the pandemic or just generally with healthcare industry? I think, Julie, you refers to it as the greatest unlock, but this massive upheaval regulation-wise, business model-wise, et cetera, in healthcare. Finding that who I work the most with, it's more has to do with what's going on with the business at the point in time. So I have companies that are seed state investments where you're doing a lot of work just helping them think through the early business model, right? And sort of building out some of the team all the way up to, I have a pre-IPO company I'm doing a lot of work with because they're actually a very, they have the most chances of success, right? So I think we want to obviously do what we can. And they've got some really interesting questions. I have also worked to take a company public. So kind of starting to think about that trajectory and what do they need to do to get ready for that and everything in between. So it's a little bit more what's going on. I find some of the most common things that I spend a lot of time on with the teams I work with are one around kind of core strategy questions. So sometimes people are either coming up with their initial strategy or they're thinking through pivots or they're actually starting new business lines. So all of those are a little complicated in their own way. The second big one is major team changes. So it could even be all the way up to like a CEO swap we need to do to more just kind of building out of teams or rounding out of teams. Um, That's a really big thing. And the third is obviously anytime someone's going through financing event, that's obviously there's sort of a point in time amount of work and support that you want to do to help make sure that goes as well as it can for the company. So yeah, my kind of almost time with different companies changes every month <laughs> and which ones are kind of most important. And so that variety is actually kind of interesting. And I would say Postal is maybe a little unique. They invest across a lot of different subsectors of healthcare, which was actually what was interesting to me. So the variety of businesses and the variety of go-to-market models I'm working with right now is pretty diverse across the book. 
And do companies ever graduate from receiving operating partner support? Sometimes it's just more about like you might lighten your support and then something might come up later on where all of a sudden it's like it warrants spending a lot of more time. I think about the only time people sort of graduate is obviously there's a large portfolio that I could work with. So I have to manage my own time well. And so clearly if a company maybe it just doesn't have any prospects or it's sort of done it and, you know, it's a large portfolio, not everything is a success. You got to allocate your time wisely amongst that portfolio. Yeah, I would say sometimes people could go through and sort of be really great. They know what they're doing. And then all of a sudden they hit the next juncture. There's something major they they didn't sort of see. At least this is how life was for me. And then you need a bunch of support again. And do you have a playbook or toolkit that you're often deploying to these? Or is it pretty one-off conversations, whiteboarding, et cetera? Yeah, it depends on the market. I think there starts to be some markets. For example, people building solutions for employers and health plans, like the market Castlight was in, where there are some sort of standardized learnings you can have or education about how the market works, how some of the relationships, some of the things to do on a go-to-market side, for example, that you can really leverage learnings across a number of companies. We have about eight different companies in that space, so we've seen it a number of times. I think there are other markets where people might be doing something so novel that there's less to go off of, and it's a lot more about like, okay, let's just talk about the market a lot and actually brainstorm and whiteboard some of this together as a way just to figure out what's going to be a viable approach there. And my last question, your Coastal experience is, as we've talked about, the great thing about venture is you get to be one degree removed, but also a little bit hands-on with all of these different teams. But I can imagine it's difficult to transition to being an individual contributor after having managed multi-million dollar P&Ls and lots of different teams and functions. So how have you navigated that transition into this new role? I have to say, after many years of it, it's kind of nice for a while to just <laughs> do my own thing, especially with the kids in the house and all sorts of craziness. And so actually, it's kind of weird that as you get older in your career, some of the things where you think you get value out of you, you start to get a little more diverse in your views on it. And so for me, it's actually just a nice shift of gears to be operating in a different way. I start working with teams, but just in a different capacity. I'm still using my experience, but in a different way. And so that's really great. You know, at some point, after doing this for a couple of years, I think I still have the option at some point to sort of say, oh, great, now I can go back and I can operate with PL and, and run a company again. So I think it's just a nice, it was like how McKinsey was nice for a couple of years. I just learned so much. I got to see so much. It made me better for the next thing I did. It was really valuable. And that's kind of how I feel about the experience right now. Yeah. And talking about crazy schedule with kids and shifting more into sort of your personal journey through COVID and leadership chapters, women are obviously bearing a significant brunt of the pandemic with home life, having to cook, teach kids, whatever it is. Is that something that you're intimately feeling? And what would your advice be to other women who want to break this cycle as these trends just sort of become sticks in the mud because of the pandemic? I think for all working parents, especially those with young kids, it's definitely been a juggling act, I would say, these last couple of months. I know a lot of families where it just is the case. It is just I think Companies on the positive side are very understanding. I mean, I think everyone has parts of their workforce that are dealing with this. Just some of my learnings around it were a couple of things. I think the first is where you can get help. And so I definitely had, especially some people that worked for me that were just really struggling and trying to soldier through everything. And at some point it was like, I know you have to balance safety and risk and things like that, but maybe just getting someone to help with parts of your life right now, or kind of go back to having someone um, come to clean the house or just can take the kids for a few hours. So you feel like you can get your work done or even, uh, you know, I've had some people that were like, I just can't do both right now. And I need to take a little bit back off from work. I think it's a sort of 
people not having to feel bad for the choices they're making and just being really flexible around that. So I think that's just been a big thing I've worked on with a number of folks working for me as well as in my own personal life. And then I think also some of it's also just being okay with, there are just points in your time where you just have to adjust your career or think about things a little bit differently. And I guess maybe as particularly as a working mom, I've gotten just much more comfortable with that. I think in the beginning, when you're really young, you're always kind of like, you have these goals and these things, and you're looking at all your peers and you're trying to achieve in it. And at some point, I think you just start to recognize being like, my gosh, my career is so long. One year off to go have my kid is not the biggest thing in the world. And as long as I've really built and been focused on developing some real skills and expertise and relationships, I'm going to be able to go back and do those roles again in a period of time. And so a little bit of it's like, don't sweat it too much. Like don't stress too much. If it's like, I lost three months of my career. It's like, that's just like small in like the grand scheme of things. If it meant like those three months were just the thing that your family needed from you at the time. Right. So I think that's the other piece of advice I'd have there is, is just kind of thinking about that, especially in digital health. I mean, there's just so much opportunity right now. I'm not worried about the market picking back up again when everyone can kind of do things. So it's just more a matter of find your right balance and get the help you need and take the time off where you need it. And you can always kind of, things will hopefully be better in a couple of months and and we'll all get through this difficult time period. Speaking outside of the pandemic, you mentioned having been in positions where you were one of the only women in the room, whether it was over 20 years ago as one of 20 engineers at Athena or even being a senior leader at a publicly traded firm or potentially even in venture being one of the few operating partners that is a woman potentially advising male founders. Can you talk a little bit about some of the dynamics you have navigated there and advice to other women who are looking to break this glass ceiling on the investing or the operating side? Yeah. I mean, one thing I would say is I do think working in healthcare is a great market to go into. I have friends from my business school class that are in a lot of other markets, and I think they've run into a lot more challenges. I think the one thing that does feel really good is I've always actually felt really supportive at the companies I've been at. I haven't and vice versa. Therefore, I've spent a lot of time actually supporting a lot of the people on my team. So I guess some tactical pieces of advice would be, as you start your career, looking for companies where there are other senior women, or at least other people that have families and are dual income families, not where one person's working, one person's not. You just have much more people where you have a set of people that are going to understand other competing concerns in your life. And so looking for that at the executive levels is really important or at the partnership levels. So that you know what you're going to not like the first time that your kid is like sick and your nanny's out and all sorts of things are going crazy. And you actually just have to like skip a whole bunch of meetings to be home. There's going to be a set of people that are going to react like, oh yeah, that's just, that happened to me last week. And there's going to be a bunch of people that are like, oh my God, I can't believe she's doing this. So I think you just want to go to places where it's going to be a more supportive environment around those things. And then I think it's really you know, just being a little thoughtful on on your career, at least kind of focused in what you really figure out what you enjoy doing. I think the biggest thing that I don't know that I fully anticipated once I had kids is you love your kids. You love your kids more than anything. And it's a really big drop. Like the first time you're like home with a newborn and then you have to go back to work, you're going to, you've got to love your job. So I think kind of spending a lot of time to find something and figure out what you really love to do from a work perspective is important because you're going to be doing this juggle and you're going to feel like you can't do everything. Um, and so what's always worked for me is I've loved my work. I've always loved my work. And that really helps. So both a supportive work environment or work that you love helps you to kind of figure out all the things that you need to do. And then having a great group of friends that can actually share the different things like this COVID, the number of times we've talked about school and send our kids back to preschool yet, or do we keep them home and homeschool them, right? I just had lots of friends that we've just been working through all these same, you know, kind of challenges or kind of how do we manage our workload right now? And how do we 
do all that. And so it's been nice to have like a group that's supportive around myself too. And, and you can form those groups in different ways. I have them both friends from my business school class, but I also have just formed them at work and a set of work colleagues that work in the industry that also are useful from a professional perspective. I guess one last parting question for you around taking risks. The economy was in a scary state earlier this year. Who knows post-November or early next year what that's going to look like as the pandemic rages on. And given that you've been in business school, potentially through some turbulent economic times, it can feel scary as a business school student to want to take risk at this juncture of your career versus a few years later down the line, once you've secured the McKinsey offer or whatever it is. So what is your advice for people who are navigating transitions in their career right now? If it's a good time to be taking risk, if it's not, any words of advice there? Yeah, I would go back to what I've learned, which is just be opportunistic, right? Like you can start and have a plan and go down your plan and then be opportunistic. So if you're like, well, I have nothing else, right? And these are the offers I have, great, just go for it and do it. But then if something great, something else, and there's an entrepreneurial opportunity that comes up, then go with it. If you're kind of like, I've got an investor that wants to like invest in me right now, I'd be like, go for it, right? Just take the opportunity. You're going to largely find success. And if you don't, there's so many other things to go do. I think people are often afraid that if I fail at something or the company doesn't make it or all these things, I'll have like, I won't have any other choices. And I would just sort of say, there's lots of choices. There's lots of things that will pop up. I'm not really worried for that, especially in the sector of the world. There's just so much interesting things going on. It's usually more like you'll have like competing things to choose from. So I would just recommend don't stress about it too much. Like take the opportunities, take the time. If this is one, one thing I would say, at least more for people that plan families, like those years right after you graduate from school are some of the best times to work crazy hours and just put your heart into a company before you have a bunch of other kind of things going on in your life. So I wouldn't be shy about go do that if that's what you really think is going to make you super happy. Great advice. Well, thank you, Nita. <laughs> really appreciated having you on the call today. Learned a lot from your journey at startups, at big companies, in venture, and super fascinating conversation. Thanks for having me today. It was fun. 